I'm Rachel Grimm, and welcome to the podcast with all your mind. I'm here to help us understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Rachel, and this is with all your mind. I'm here on what was a sunny spring day, but now it's kind of cloudy. It's probably going to rain again. And it's spring in Pennsylvania, which means the trees are trying to kill you. Allergies in Pennsylvania in springtime are pretty... (laughs) Okay, here's one for you. I did not know before I moved to Pennsylvania what sinuses were. Uh, I guess being on Guam, I was very lucky, blessed, fortunate that allergies were never a thing for me. Living where there's constant salt air, I guess, does really good things for sinuses. Moved to Pennsylvania, discovered sinuses exist and that they're very angry all the time to be living in Pennsylvania. Um, My car right now, parked under my oak tree, is green. The paint is black, but the, the car is green because of the pollen from the tree just dumping on it all day. I tell my boys, don't touch that, don't touch that, you know, whenever I see like piles of pollen on things, um, because one of my sons gets allergies really bad. Uh, They're both coughing and sneezing, and we're blowing noses. Uh, I went to the chiropractor this morning, partly just because my face was so angry at my back, for my back being messed up and causing more tension in my face, I couldn't handle it. Anyway, all that to say, it's springtime in Pennsylvania. Um, okay, so let's get into it. This is a question and answer episode, right? And I, I told you guys, whatever questions you have, it doesn't matter if it's about a topic that we already talked about or something completely different. And you can ask me questions about me. So we got some questions, some really good ones, but I was kind of upset that there were no softballs in there. I wanted some easy questions and you guys only sent really difficult, really good, but really intense questions. And I'm like, where's the easy questions? I want some easy questions. Be kind. So um, I'm going to give myself some easy questions, okay? So I can't dive into these hard questions right away. Easy questions. What's my favorite color? Ah, thanks for asking. Uh, I love lots of colors. Like I love to just look at paint chips at the hardware store. Just seeing all the colors together. I really like that. Um, But I really like purple and red and green. Those are probably my top three. But when it comes to flowers, I really like red and orange together. Like my wedding flowers were mostly red and orange. So thanks for that great question. Second great question Would you rather go to the beach or the mountains? And I'm going to say hike to water. (laughs) That would be my favorite. Growing up on Guam, doing hikes on Guam, it was never a worthwhile hike to me unless there was water at the end or a really good view, like all the way to the top of a mountain or down to a beach or to waterfalls or something like that. You either need a great view or good water. Now, the one thing I will say is I'm going to a cold beach like where you can't get in the water because it's too cold, pointless. Don't want to go there. Hiking to a beach, great. Beach in general, yes. Hiking, yes. So mountains, good. All right, there you go. Good question number three. What is something I'm looking forward to? Something I'm really looking forward to this summer is an obstacle course race. It's a 5k race. 
um, that has like a ton of obstacles on it, like every, I don't know, 100 feet or something. Not that bad. There are obstacles like climb over something, climb under something, um, pull something, push something, climb across, all these different kinds of obstacles. So that's in July. And I'm going with a couple of friends and I'm really looking forward to that one. I haven't done an obstacle course race in about, I'm going to guess maybe four years. It's really fun. And this one is one of the mud runs. That means that there's going to be crawling through mud pits and stuff like that. So you have to go knowing that whatever clothes you're wearing are going to get totally trashed. Like literally, you're just going to end up throwing them away. Um, So yeah, really looking forward to that one. That and fruit picking in the summer are probably two of the big things that I'm looking forward to this summer. All right. So now that I gave myself those softballs, Let's move on. We're going to answer two bigger questions in this episode. Uh, The first one is about a phrase that's used, and it's one that's probably thrown around a bit. And the person was asking, why do we use this phrase? Okay. And the phrase is that the nation of Israel was in exile to Babylon. Why do we use that phrase in exile? Why not say, deported to, or moved to, or lived in, or just some other phrase to mean that the people from Israel lived in Babylon. So I'll give some background for what happened and why, and then we'll talk about that specific terminology. Why do we say they were in exile? And I thought that this was actually a really, really good question because it's a matter of terminology, but also some concepts. But that terminology, in exile, is one of those things that we just use. And we might not think about why we're using that phrase, but it's also an example of Christianese, of saying that the nation of Israel was in exile. It's just an automatic thing, especially once you hear it enough. So we use it, but why do we use that specific phrase? And what does it mean? Okay, so the nation of Israel was basically under contract to God. And the contract was that if they followed God's covenant, God's contract with them, that he would be their God, he would protect them and bless them, they would be special, be able to remain in their land, and that land was the land he specifically gave to them. If they didn't follow the contract, basically all of the rules would go in the opposite direction. They would be cursed. They would basically just lose in every single way, and they would need to leave the land. And then there was a clause, basically, if you, if you break the covenant, you have to leave. But if you return to the covenant, if you return to God, then he would bring them back to their land. So the nation of Israel had to leave their land as a fulfillment of that covenant in two different waves. Uh, the nation of Israel in the north and the nation of Judah in the south left the land at different times. The first wave was in the 700s BC, when the northern kingdom got conquered by the Assyrians, and most of the population was deported to different parts of the Assyrian kingdom, which at that time stretched all the way from Egypt to modern-day Iran. Then the southern kingdom was conquered by the Babylonians in the 500s BC, so that's nearly 200 years later. And most of the population was deported to what is now modern-day Iraq. So Assyria kind of covered that area, and then Assyria was conquered by the Babylonians. 
And the Babylonians had like a smaller territory within the stretch of the Assyrian territory. So we specifically say that the nation was in exile because like exiles, there's a hope to return. Chunks of the population of the southern kingdom returned to the area of Palestine or Israel in the early 500s BC, some in the 400s BC, but many, many people from the northern kingdom never returned. Some did, but many didn't. And we have records of rabbis sending letters to Israel, Israel proper, Palestine, from what is called the Diaspora, the people scattered across basically the ancient Middle East. So we have records of rabbis sending letters around, like they were still in correspondence with each other while they were still living in these different towns and cities and nations across the ancient Near East, so that we know for sure that there were unbroken lines of Jewish descent living in the Middle East all the way up until Jesus' time. They lived there long after that as well. I'm just specifically referring to some letters that we know from that time. So for this reason, because many Jews never returned to the nation of Israel, the land of Israel, after the deportation, after the Assyrians and the Babylonians captured the land and deported the people, because of this, some Jews still consider the nation to be in exile. So they would say, oh, we're not back in the land yet. Everybody needs to be back before we're really truly back in the land. So they might say that Israel is still in exile. The Jews are still in exile. But fun fact, there were still whole populations of people, of Jews, living in Iraq and Iran that didn't return to Israel until a nation of Israel was formed again in 1948. And others remained in different parts of the Middle East until the 50s and beyond. So there are still villages, towns, not so much now, but until the 50s or so, it was fairly common to know of a village or a town that was nearly entirely populated by Jews anywhere in the Middle East. I talked to a friend when I was uh, looking up things for this episode. Uh, She was somebody that I did... Hebrew language classes with in Israel. She's Australian, but she married a native Israeli. And his family, his, I think both sides of his family, they came from, I'm going to get it wrong. Sorry, Courtney, if I get it wrong. Um, I think his family was from Iraq. Oh, Kurdistan. They were specifically from Kurdistan, if you know where that is. And his grandparents didn't come to Israel until the 1950s, and then he grew up in Israel. So yeah, very common to have people that are ethnically Jewish, but culturally, they lived in Iraq, Iran, Syria, all these different places. But there's a (laughs) big background of why we use the term in exile. In exile has the connotation that the people don't want to be there, that they have a hope of returning. And certainly in the BC era, the people didn't want to be living other than in Israel. They were deported. They were taken out of their land. But after that, some chose to stay in what had been Babylon or what had been Assyria 
Um, maybe just because they had good businesses there. Or maybe they weren't so sure about the security and stability of moving back to Israel. Yeah, that's why we use the term in exile. That means deported, taken from a place, not by your own will. You're forced to go and you have a hope of returning. And that is exactly the situation that was at hand with Israel. All right, so there you have it. (laughs) I just had to go take a break, by the way, to... Blow my nose, <laughs> pour honey down my throat, because the, the trees, they're really trying to kill me. Allergies, man. They're no joke. Okay, next one is a really, I thought it was this was an excellent question, because this is a topic that you see all through the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. And it's something that we hear a lot, but because you hear it a lot, again, these things that you just hear all the time can sometimes slip under the radar of our understanding and we just kind of jump right over it and we have no clue what it means, but we kind of know what it means and we figure that's good enough and that's what everybody does. No, you do not have to settle for that, okay? So this is a really good one. What is the difference between son of man, son of God, sons of God, and there's more? And the person was really only asking, what is the difference between son of man and son of God, but we're going to go into the whole topic of son of blank. (laughs) What does that phrasing mean? What does each particular one mean? And how to kind of decipher those things in general. So it's another example of kind of Christianese, but not exactly Christianese, just kind of phrasing that we use and the Bible uses. And there's good solid answers, so you don't have to put up with kind of understanding it. So in general, in the Hebrew Bible and in Hebrew culture, calling someone the son of something is to associate the person with that thing. So there's lots of different son of blank phrases. So let's see how many you're familiar with, okay? And I'm just going to list them real quick. We'll go back and talk about each one of them. Son of God, son of man, son of Belial, sons of the prophets. And then not just son, but children of, children of Belial, children of men, children of God, children of the bridegroom, children of Israel, children of light, children of the kingdom. So there's tons of these and they're all through the Bible. So there's a general idiom. There's a general meaning that saying children of something is to give characteristics or a special relationship to that people. So children of God means either that those children are like God or have a special relationship to God. So let's look through that list real quick and see what's kind of more obvious now. Son of God, having a special relationship with God or characteristics like him. Son of man, characteristics of man or like man or special relationship to man. Son of Belial, this was basically a phrase meaning kind of like the devil or some evil spirit, basically. Son of Belial, you're a nasty person. Sons of the prophets, you were a prophet in turn. Children of Belial, same as son of Belial. Children of men, same as son of man. Children of the bridegroom, this one is completely different. And it is an idiom to mean guests, guests at a wedding. 
children of Israel simply means children of Israel, of the patriarch Israel. They were naming the nation after Israel, who was Jacob, and his sons, meaning his grandchildren, anybody that came from his line were the Israelites. Children of light specifically meant followers of Jesus. You can see how it's special characteristics that would make you similar to. So children of the light would look like the light. And then children of the kingdom. This one sounded like a good thing, but it was not. So let's look specifically at son of man and son of God. So first up, son of God. Guess what? Jesus is not the only person called the son of God. Israel is called God's firstborn son. Angels and spiritual beings are called sons of God. You can see that in Job 1. And kings were called sons of God. And you can see this in Psalm 2. Even though it's a messianic psalm, it also refers to David being a son of God. So when Jesus is called son of God, it's kind of like the epitome, the ultimate version of this thing. It's an ultimately special relationship having the same characteristics. It's saying he's the perfect version of the best thing ever in terms of relating to and being like God, which if you take it all the way out, who can be exactly like God and who can have the perfect relationship with him? Only God can achieve that. So even just in Jesus being called the son of God, if he is the perfect example of son of God, that basically means he is God because he is the only person that could faithfully do that all the way 100% perfectly. It's kind of the snake eating its tail there on that picture. But Jesus is a son of God, meaning he has a special relationship to God and is like God. But he is also the perfect example of what that relationship looks like. So that makes him God <laughs> as well. So let's move on to son of man. What is son of man then? And who is called that? Uh, Numbers 23 talks about son of man for the first time. And it's interesting because it's specifically talking about how God is not a son of man, that he's not human, and he doesn't basically look like people. He's not fickle. He doesn't drop promises and doesn't follow through on things. Numbers 23 is talking about, I am not like you guys. I am not fickle and I am not unloyal or disloyal. I am, I am God. I am something other than people. So that's the first time we hear the son of man phrase in the whole Bible. And it's to talk about how God is not a son of man not those characteristics, that those characteristics that we would typically think of as frail humanity do not apply to God. Job uses the phrase twice to talk about being human and its frailness, and he would be a guy that would know all about that. He was very frail, he was broken down, and he used the phrase son of man to refer to that frailty of humanity. God calls Ezekiel son of man over and over and over and over and just, you know, tons of times in the book of Ezekiel. And God reuses it to refer to Ezekiel just to kind of say, hey, you human guy. It was just his own special way 
of referring to Ezekiel. And I don't know, was he trying to call attention to Ezekiel's humanity to distance himself? Because, you know, of all of Ezekiel's crazy visions of spiritual things, was God trying to impress on him, you're a human, I am different? I don't know. That's just a guess. But it refers to Ezekiel and a human a lot in the book of Ezekiel. And then where we see a switch with the phrase son of man is in Daniel. And this is where the phrase changes and it's used for the first time to mean God, to reference God. But it's in an odd way. It's in a way that makes God look kind of human too. So it's the first time that the phrase son of man is used about God, but obviously it means having human characteristics. And the picture in Daniel, it's it's the cloud rider. Let me just read this passage. Um, it, It comes after two other visions. So it's in a really complicated passage, but this is the part that mentions son of man. It's verse 13, Daniel 7, 13, and this is out of NIV. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man. So it doesn't say the son of man. It doesn't say a son of man. It says like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So it says like a son of man. That means that maybe Daniel isn't sure what he's seeing here. And he's saying, "Ah, it looked like God, but it looked like a human. And he's just trying to do his best to tell us what he saw. And maybe he doesn't even know. And we're left kind of wondering, what is this? Is this a human or is this God? And if it's God, why does it approach the ancient of days? As in, it's not the Ancient of Days, it's not God himself. It's a really confusing picture, and it would be a confusing picture to a Jewish person of Daniel's day to say what is going on. From our perspective, looking back, we can say the guy that looks like a human is a human, but can approach God and is given all power and glory. Yeah, that's talking about Jesus, right? So this first time that we see Son of Man referred to, a you know, referring to God, it's with an odd picture that we're like, wait, is this God or is this a human? Though in the next chapter after that vision, Daniel himself is called a son of man again. So in the same book, within two chapters of each other, it's used to reference God and man. So both apply in the book of Daniel. Okay, so that's kind of what we have leading up to the New Testament And then in the New Testament, son of man is Jesus's favorite way of referring to himself. He calls himself the son of man more than anything else. He also calls himself Lord, but he calls himself son of man all the time. And he's bringing up lots of ideas when he refers to himself as the son of man. He's referring to himself as human, as having human characteristics And he is implying, he's bringing up the idea of the guy in Daniel's vision. And then he's also bringing up the idea of being Lord or master. And in that, there's an implication of God, 
went because he's calling himself Son of Man and Lord. So he's bringing together two different pictures, Son of Man, meaning a human, Lord, which is the way that Jews would talk about Yahweh in the New Testament because they did not use the name Yahweh in Greek. And he's bringing that kind of dual picture from Daniel into play, all just by using this one little phrase, son of man. And there's lots of other kind of themes and ideas and connotations in there that are not so obvious when you're just reading through the Bible, kind of just taking the words for what they are and not thinking too deeply about it. It's, it's hard to, to grasp all of this when you're just reading through, but there's just a lot going on and there's a lot of logic, a lot of connections that can really help us to understand the depth of what is being said. Okay, so if you want to help yourself out with some of these things, you can go back to season one. We talked about Lord and Lord, Lord and Lord in an episode. We talked about the name Yahweh in a couple of different episodes. Knowing how Jesus could have referred to himself and how he did refer to himself gives you different ideas about what he was saying and why he was saying it. There you go. Uh, So son of God, son of man, children of the bridegroom, children of Israel, all those ideas, they can refer to genealogy. Children of Israel just means basically descendants of Israel, having a family connection. But also when you talk about son of Belial or son of God or son of man, you're bringing in the connotation, you're bringing in the idea of similarity to that thing or special relationship to that thing. So if you've ever heard the phrase, son of a motherless goat, does anybody remember that? That line came from somewhere, right? It was one of Steve Martin's lines in the 1986 movie, The Three Amigos. I had to look this up because I did not remember this. And so because of that, like I have used that phrase from time to time, son of a motherless goat. It's just funny. It's just weird. And it doesn't bring that movie to mind for me because I didn't even know that it came from that movie. I've seen the movie, but I didn't remember that. And so phrases might not bring up their original connotation when we use them, especially if they're from the Bible, right? I didn't think of the movie. And then son of man, when you read that in the Bible, you might automatically think, well, Jesus, that was Jesus, right? But that's not what it would automatically make somebody think of if they were living in Jesus' time. If Jesus used the phrase son of man, a first century AD Jewish guy from Bethlehem would probably automatically think of human, frail person that can fall down and get a skinned knee or break an elbow or get sciatica or, (laughs) you know, any number of human things that can happen to human bodies because we're frail, we're kind of delicate, like if we don't fix it, sometimes it just it never gets fixed. You know, that's, that's part of humanity is that our bodies are weak. Kind of like I was thinking of an analogy for this and I thought of paper dolls. You know, those paper dolls where you could have little paper clothes for them and you kind of bend the tabs back over the paper doll and you could just dress them. 
that's kind of what people are. Like paper dolls, if they even get wet, they get ruined, right? People, if we get too wet, we get ruined, right? If we're stuck under the water, that's it for us. We're over. So Jesus talking about being a son of man was not a glorious idea. It was to say, hey, my body is just as ridiculously weak and fragile as the rest of you guys, and I'm here. All right, so that's probably what a first century person would have thought of. Um, I have in my show notes a Bible Project podcast episode that talked a lot about Son of Man and Son of God, and I thought it was really, really good. Uh, They published it in February of 2023. Um, So if you want more information on that from a more scholarly perspective, definitely check that one out. And we're going to stop there because the other questions I have were even more intense. These are the easier ones, guys. And so we have two more questions in the next episode. They are really good. I would not miss them if I were you. I give myself some more softballs in there um, just to break the ice before we launch into deep topics. But I'm looking forward to those and I'll see you guys again next time. All right. Bye bye. Mm -hmm.